What will society be like right after the rapture happens? What is mass formation psychosis? And how can the Antichrist use it to build a worldwide empire? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. To the Cross References podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. We're between Ezekiel lessons, and this time I decided to hit on a subject that's related to something that's been in the news for the past few weeks. And I'm not actually going to talk about anything in the current headlines but I want to talk about it as it relates to end times Bible prophecy. So today's going to be a little different than the usual Bible studies uh, because we won't get into the Bible part of it until toward the end. The first part of this lesson is really going to be focused on psychology and sociology. Now, if you like learning about psychology and how the human brain works, you might find this interesting. If you don't really care about psychology, you might want to skip this one. Um, I'm just going to put that out there right now. But regardless, we will get into some Bible prophecy topics toward the end of the lesson. And I'll say this as a disclaimer too. Um, Later on, it is going to include some speculation on my part because I'm going to try to make some educated guesses about how things will play out on the earth after the rapture. Uh, So I'm admitting now, some of it is speculation. So if you hate end times speculation, this is not going to be for you. If you don't like psychology, sociology, Bible prophecy, or even some speculation, just skip out on this one. Final warning. So if anyone is still here, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and remind you, I'm an Assemblies of God minister. If you were to categorize my beliefs about the end times, I would be considered a premillennial dispensationalist. That means I believe in a future seven-year time of apocalyptic, it's like an apocalyptic time period that we call the tribulation. It's basically the end of the world. It kicks off with an event called the rapture, and then that essentially starts the clock on the last seven years of planet Earth. During that time, an evil world leader will rise up. At the end of those seven years, Jesus returns to this Earth. He has a thousand-year kingdom. That's what it means to be a premillennial dispensationalist. If, If you haven't done so yet, um, I highly encourage you to go back to listen to episode four. That's that's where I gave five things that you need to know before you sit down to study Bible prophecy. So as I mentioned, um, there's this figure who rules the world during the tribulation. He's called the Antichrist. He is prophesied in several books of the Bible. And there are a ton of details given about what he'll be up to on the earth during that time. However, despite all the evil and pain and suffering that he's going to inflict, he has a loyal fan base. Now, why would so many people around the world follow such a terrible person? Is it mind control? Is it a free choice? Well, I'm going to try to answer that question today. But first, let's talk for a few minutes about mass formation psychosis. This is a new buzzword that's making the rounds on social media, especially the conservative social media. And that's because a prominent scientist, his name's Dr. Robert Malone, he made some comments about mass formation psychosis on the popular Joe Rogan podcast, and he related the concept to the current worldwide pandemic that we're experiencing. This has caused a backlash from the news media, from the social media, even search engines like Google, they're trying to discredit this doctor and his sociological theories. And I'm going to describe the concept today. However, just to be clear, I'm not going to talk about it as it relates to the pandemic or any current events. It's not that I'm afraid to talk about controversial subjects. I'm just saying it's simply not my goal for today's show, and I don't want to distract from what is my goal today. I'm more interested in talking about it as it relates to the future. So mass formation psychosis is a phenomenon where a large portion of the population rallies around a certain idea. And the idea may or may not be true. But when challenged on the truthfulness of their belief, 
They rally around public thought leaders and they castigate anyone who disagrees with their leaders. So their sense of identity and self-esteem, it becomes bonded to the idea and they have a lot of anxiety about protecting the idea and the leaders who promote it. So again, Robert Malone, he popularized this phenomenon lately by applying it to the modern debate about COVID-19 and vaccines and Dr. Anthony Fauci and so forth. And I'm not going to say anything about all that today, okay? But I would like to bring in an example from history because this is something that we can apply this phenomenon to. And I know I'm going to sound like one of those guys who always has a lazy (laughs) Hitler analogy. So at the risk of sounding like that, I do think one of the clearest examples of this is how the German citizens treated their Jewish neighbors leading up to the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust, it was obviously one of the the worst human rights atrocities in world history. That's why it's so easy to point to it whenever we're having discussions about morality. Um, But I want to focus a bit on the days leading up to the Holocaust and then how some of them reacted during the Holocaust. You know, before you could have a Holocaust where you were going to easily wipe out hundreds of Jews at a time, you know, six million by the end of it, before you could get to that point, you had to have about a decade or so of turning the citizenry against them, building animosity toward them. And so before World War II even kicked off, the German government was filling the streets with propaganda. They were telling all kinds of audacious lies about the Jewish people. They would say that Jewish people spread diseases. They posted quarantine signs outside of Jewish communities. They would blame the Jews for all of society's problems. And Hitler used some of these lies to justify his war against Poland, and that was a country with a huge Jewish population, and that's what kicked off World War II. So at that point, you you had all of the things present here for mass formation psychosis. You had this anxiety about the Jewish people. They had this false idea that Poland had attacked a German radio station, which was a hoax, but Hitler used that false idea to start the war. You have this man who claims to have all the answers to the the problems of the day. And once you're a few years into this war, it becomes very uncouth to question the circumstances that led to it. To say, are we sure that Hitler knows what he's doing? And are we sure that we're fighting for a good cause? (laughs) Are we sure that the Jews are really as bad as they say they are? You know, at that point, you could be considered a traitor just for questioning the settled science about the Jews or the leader who makes proclamations about them. So mass formation psychosis is a label you could stick on that. And I think the reason it gets a strong reaction right now is because of that word psychosis. It makes it sound like you're saying the population is literally insane. Um, To that, I would just say, you know, the more you understand about human psychology and how persuasion works, the more you understand that being hypnotized or brainwashed or to hallucinate something that isn't there, that's all actually is pretty ordinary and common. Um, It doesn't mean that you're insane or a crazy person who needs locked up. It really happens on a small scale among virtually all people on a constant basis. So when we say mass formation psychosis, we're not trying to be dramatic (laughs) and call half the population psychos. I think that the German people, they were generally intelligent, even generally kind individuals. And they just believed this one false racist idea, and it had been implanted in them by this trusted but malevolent leader who essentially brainwashed the population, and it was not hard to do. Mass formation psychosis is kind of like a large-scale cognitive dissonance with a few differences that we're gonna cover in a bit, but let me talk about cognitive dissonance first. Cognitive dissonance is when you have two competing ideas in your head and you are uncomfortable with resolving them. We often experience it whenever we're wrong about something. Uh, When we get something wrong, we often try to look for an excuse as to why we did something wrong, why something didn't turn out the way we thought it would. Why? Well, we, you know, we tend to have a positive self-image of ourselves. We think we're smart, that we have common sense. And so anytime we do something stupid, which all of us do, 
on a regular basis, no matter how smart you are, it can trigger cognitive dissonance. Because now you have this idea in your head that you're smart, but it's hard to reconcile that with how you just did this dumb thing. So you make up an excuse for why you did it. You, you blame someone else. You blame the lack of sleep from the night before. You, you blame something that was beyond your control. Because that's a more comfortable idea for your brain to handle than the idea that you made a mistake. Or let's say someone criticizes you. Someone says that you did something wrong. Well, that, that can be a little damaging to our egos. We don't like what they said. So we find some other reason to discredit it. We try to find something negative to say about that person. We, we fixate on one of their flaws. We say, oh, well, they're just being too judgmental. You know, we, we find some even ridiculous reason to dismiss them, even though we've previously agreed with what they said about a dozen other people. So we don't like the thought that they might have a valid criticism of us. So until we're able to deal with that, we find some other reason to dismiss their opinion. That's just more comfortable than dealing with the pain of what they said. That's cognitive dissonance. Maybe you make a prediction about something and it goes terribly wrong. Even though you were so certain, you'd be right. That's a trigger for cognitive dissonance because now you have to wrestle with what you believed to be true versus what actually came true. And you say, well, but wait a minute, I'm smart. I knew what was going to happen. And then you didn't. So you find a reason to explain why you are still smart, but then something happened that nobody could have seen coming. The, the, the more emotional you are about an idea also influences this. The more emotional you are about protecting some kind of idea, the more easily your cognitive dissonance about it can be triggered. So if you make a prediction about who's going to win the election for the next prime minister of Denmark, and then you get that wrong, that's not really hard to admit. <laughs> you know, if, if you're not from Denmark, then you probably don't care about how the elections over there go. But in your own country, when the candidate that you expect to win loses, it's very easy to fall into cognitive dissonance. You're, you're going to be much more emotional about the elections in your own nation. So that's why when a candidate loses, like in America, there's always all these accusations here that the other side cheated, that it was rigged, that another country interfered. All those excuses for why your candidate lost, they're easier to accept than the idea that they just lost fair and square. So every time an election happens, it's a huge trigger for a cognitive dissonance bomb to go off in half the country. And by the way, everyone experiences cognitive dissonance. I do, you do, every person you meet does. So I'm not even trying to say anything today to insult people, to call them dumb, to imply that they have mental problems, no. It's just a typical part of being human. We all experience it from time to time. You, you can't even detect it in yourself until after it passes because it's a state of denial. You, you can't really know you're in denial until later, at a minimum. So you can't really detect your own cognitive dissonance. It's much easier to spot in others. It's universal to the human experience. However, there are things that you can do to protect yourself from cognitive dissonance. And one of those things is, is being willing to accept uncomfortable truths. And this can require some bravery because it means accepting an idea that you don't like. So um, every person who gets saved, but meaning to become a Christian, every person who gets saved has to fight through some cognitive dissonance because virtually all humans believe themselves to be good people. The human heart is incredibly powerful at self-justification. It always has a way to defend your name and anything you've ever done. So virtually all human beings carry around this idea that I'm a good person. But when you read the Bible, it says we're all sinners. That's a conflicting idea. And it's a conflicting idea that we're all going to be emotional about. So you have all the things in place for cognitive dissonance. You've got the emotion. You've got the trigger. You can come up with reasons to reject this idea that I'm a sinner. But if you want to go to heaven, you've got to come to grips with the idea that you don't deserve heaven, that we're lost sinners. 
you, you got to fight through the cognitive dissonance that just wants to say, I'm a really good person. And uh, you, you got to accept what the Bible says. So we all experience cognitive dissonance, but we've got to fight through it to believe the truth rather than what we're most comfortable believing. And this can be true on a societal level. You know, whenever you and, and everybody who lives on your block and all your friends on Facebook or Twitter and all your favorite media sources are saying the same thing, but it doesn't line up with reality. You have a choice whether to chase the truth or to join the crowd. And most people join the crowd. There's a really fascinating story about a German town called Ordruf. And um, I'm probably saying it wrong. I'm <laughs> so it's spelled O-H-R-D-R-U-F. I'm just going to call it Ordruf. And in Ordruf, they literally had a concentration camp not far from the town uh, back during World War II. So throughout the Second World War, the citizens of Ordruf, they just went about their daily lives and, and they just tried to ignore the atrocity that was happening just a short walk away. The German government had told the citizens that this concentration camp, that it was just a resettlement of the Jews, that they were just being given a new place to live, that when they shipped the Jews out of their ghettos where they had lived freely, that they were actually just evacuating those Jews and that the death camps that they were sent to, well, that was just resettling. It was propaganda wordplay. And, and many of the German citizens, they must have known that this was not as simple and neutral as it sounded. They must have known that something worse was going on. But if you acknowledge that, well, then you'd have to deal with the, the cognitive dissonance that the country you were cheering on in the war was maybe evil. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But the Germans knew somewhere in the back of their mind that something sinister was up. I mean, the citizens of Ordruf, they must have heard the screams, the wailing that was coming from that camp. They must have seen the prison conditions of the Jews from afar. They, they must have heard the occasional gunshots coming from it, but they ignored it because the cognitive dissonance that everything is fine was easier to accept. And, and if they investigated what was going on there and they found something sinister, well, they, they might be morally obligated to do something about it. And that idea isn't fun either. By 1944, most of the world knew about the existence of the concentration camps. Uh, many people thought it was a conspiracy theory because it just seemed too horrible to comprehend. But the truth was out there. Most people knew about them. The, the people who seemed to know the least about what was going on were the German citizens themselves because it was, it was too horrible to comprehend that this stuff was going on in their own backyard. And they were, they were just happy to continue on with life as usual, happy not to know. Or did they know? So when, when General George Patton of the U United States Army, he liberated Ordruf and he went to that concentration camp, it, said, it was said that he threw up upon seeing the living conditions of the concentration camp there. Then <laughs> he went into the town that was right by it. He grabbed the mayor by the collar, dragged him into the camp so that the mayor had to come face to face with the horror that had been going on next door. And then Patton forced all the citizens of Ordruf to come to the camp, dig graves, hold a funeral for the dead bodies at the camp. For the people who died while well, the Ordruf citizens just went on with life as usual pretending that they didn't know or care about, about what was happening in the concentration camp next door, that it was out of sight, out of mind. And after the funeral, Patton noticed that the mayor was not present. That enraged him again. He marched back into town and he went to the mayor's house and he opened the door. And what did he see? The mayor and his wife had hung themselves in their house. They had finally come face to face with reality and it was too much for them to take. Before they died, they left a suicide note that Patton found. It had only six words. 
They basically left behind one sentence. They scribbled down just six words. And then they took their own lives and left this world. They couldn't deal with reality with what they had tried to ignore for years. This is what they wrote. We didn't know, but we knew. That's all they wrote. We didn't know, but we knew. They had the two conflicting ideas in their head. And they suppressed the truth because the lie was more comfortable to believe. To, to kind of bring this back to a gospel idea, th this is why cognitive dissonance is still a, a psychological phenomenon that everybody experiences. It afflicts us all, smart and dumb, young and old, rich and poor. It's practically universal to the human experience. And yet we're still supposed to push through it and embrace the truth, regardless of how it makes us feel. We are responsible for what we choose to believe. We will not get off the hook, you know, when judged by God, we will not get off the hook for our cognitive dissonance. According to the Bible, for example, Romans 1 says that all humans have been given enough evidence to believe in God. There's no excuse for atheism according to Romans 1. Let me read these verses for you. You've probably heard them before, but listen to them and, and think of them as kind of from a from a cognitive dissonance framework. I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God says that when you deny God's reality, when you choose to follow false philosophies rather than God's truth, that you're responsible for that because you suppress the truth because of unrighteousness. You might sincerely believe a false idea. Your belief might be truly sincere, but you only believe it because of unrighteous motivations. And the Bible doesn't let us off the hook that easy. It doesn't let anyone use the excuse that there's a lack of evidence. The Bible looks right into the human heart and says you don't really want to admit the truth because then you'd be responsible to God for your actions. But regardless, you are always responsible for what you choose to believe. Now, I'm going to make a few more points about mass formation psychosis, and, and then we're going to discuss a few ideas from the Bible about future prophecy. Listen, I know I've thrown a lot of ideas out at you today. <laughs> this may be one of those programs that you have to go back and listen to again to let it all sink in. I know it's a lot of new terminology. Maybe you haven't thought about all of this stuff from kind of a psychological framework before. Um, let's get back to discussing mass formation psychosis. Okay, this is kind of like, but, but not exactly, but, but it's kind of like cognitive dissonance on a massive scale. When the German citizens were wrestling with this idea of supporting their country in a war effort, but also this idea that maybe their country was doing some bad stuff, well, that was cognitive dissonance. And they had this idea that the Jews were evil because Hitler had said so. But then Hitler started to look like maybe he was a little evil. So that right there is a trigger for cognitive dissonance on a massive scale. Now, the idea of mass formation psychosis has a few elements beyond that. This goes a little bit past simple cognitive dissonance on a mass scale. There's a few extra elements that are a part of the equation. And, and all of this helps to control the population with some kind of false idea. So one important element 
is disconnecting the public from each other, making them socially isolated, preventing them from talking to each other in the outside world, controlling the news information that they receive. Now, <laughs> I know a lot of people are going to think I'm trying to make references to the coronavirus stuff and the lockdowns. Again, I'm not really interested in talking about that today. What I'd rather discuss is just the concept here of mass formation psychosis itself. So the, the first element is that members of the public, they feel socially isolated. The second thing is a withdrawal of things that people used to enjoy. So for Germany, um, if you think about it, that the country had been really pummeled after the First World War and the citizens, they had just been living through an economic calamity ever since. There was unsustainable inflation. Uh, people were living either in poverty or on the edge of poverty. There was the sense of pervasive anxiety. And anxiety, that is the third important element of mass formation psychosis. It's people living in a constant state of fear. People having a lot of trepidation about the future. People facing some kind of problem that seems insurmountable. And fourth, okay, the fourth element that can induce mass formation psychosis, the fourth element is an authority figure who says he can deliver you from the problem that you're facing. Someone who seems to have all the answers. Hitler can come along and blame the Jews and blame other countries and convince people that Germany has a right to lash out and try to conquer the world. So four elements beyond just cognitive dissonance, these four elements are also necessary to achieve a mass formation psychosis. Remember these because we're going to revisit them later. You need social isolation, a loss of previous privileges, a pervasive anxiety among the populace, and an authority figure with all the answers. These are the ingredients for mass formation psychosis. Once you have all of this in place, then that authority figure, he can make you believe anything. Now, let's talk about what the Bible says about the future, because I think we can, we can look at end times Bible prophecy and find a lot of these elements in place to pave the way for the Antichrist to be one of those authority figures. So, as we've said, there's a seven-year tribulation coming. And this is, this is a common belief among those from a Pentecostal or perhaps a Baptist background. This is the foundation for the Left Behind Book series that, that was like really popular in the 90s. Now listen, some people believe there's a seven-year period, but it's really only in the last three and a half years that all the really bad stuff happens. And um, that's fine too. I'm not even going to quibble over that today. Uh, but we all still believe, basically, there's essentially a seven-year period that this guy called the Antichrist, he's going to amass a lot of political power. He's going to run the world in the sense that he will be the most powerful ruler on planet Earth during that time. Even if he doesn't, like, turn really openly evil until the last three and a half years of it. But the seven-year period, it kicks off with the Antichrist's rise to power. We see this in Revelation 6, verse 1. It's when the Antichrist, he's the first judgment of God to be released on the earth during the seven-year tribulation. Let me read a couple verses here. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. He's holding a bow because it means that he makes a covenant. And I, I won't take time to explain why on this episode, but the bow, it represents a covenant in biblical language. So this figure on the white horse is the Antichrist, and he arrives on the scene with some kind of covenant, perhaps a treaty between many nations. I'm going to note that even though the Antichrist is released as a judgment of God, like I said, the Antichrist is not of God. He's not a godly person. <laughs> Obviously, that's why he's called the Antichrist. But God, as a judgment on planet Earth, as a way to bring about the end of the world, he's turning the world over to Satan for seven years. Satan will rule the world through the Antichrist. And this is all about humanity's last chance to repent and turn to God. And this is about Satan's last chance 
to give humanity a choice about who they want to follow. And there's seven years to do it. So God allows the Antichrist to be unleashed on the world. And the thing that inaugurates the Antichrist's appearance is this covenant. We see this idea also prophesied in Daniel 9.27. It says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So in that verse, when it, it's the he is the Antichrist, and the week right there is actually talking about a week of seven years. I won't take time to get into why, um, you know, it, but the language in Daniel here, it's not talking about a seven-day period, which is how we usually use the word week. It's, it's actually talking about weeks of years in that chapter of the Bible. It's very easy to demonstrate that. We just won't take time to today. So the Antichrist makes a covenant with many for one week or a seven-year period. And it also said that for the second half of the week, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. That's referring to the second half of the tribulation. That's where the Antichrist gets really, really bad. But basically, the idea most of us have is that for the first half, the Antichrist just kind of seems like a good guy to most people. You know, I'm not saying he's going to be a saint. (laughs) There's a lot of popular politicians who are not saints. And the Antichrist is just going to be a super popular politician. One of the most persuasive and captivating politicians that the world has ever seen. Many, many people are going to be drawn to him. But it's not until the second half of the tribulation that he takes the mask off and reveals how truly and openly evil that he actually is. And by that point, there will be so many people bought into him that they, they'll just kind of go along with it. You know, for the first half of the tribulation, he's even going to be viewed by many people as a savior. And, and what is it about this guy that's going to be so magnetic? Well, some Christians have this idea that it's going to be kind of like mind control. And we see this idea demonstrated in the left behind books and movies that just anyone who like locks eyes with the Antichrist basically goes into a trance-like state and uh, just believes whatever he says, like they're being hypnotized. And, you know, in the movie, um, the Antichrist, he like shoots a few people in cold blood and then he just gets away with it because he like he mind controls everybody in the room to disregard it. Uh, If you've seen the movie, you know what scene I'm talking about because this is like the climax of the first movie. And if you haven't seen the movie or read the books, basically the Antichrist in those stories, he can like he can basically hypnotize people by looking at them. Now, will it be that way in reality? You know, will the super will the Antichrist have supernatural mind control powers? I I don't think so. Um, at least I don't think it's going to be like it's depicted in the movie. I believe that the Antichrist's ability to persuade people to follow him, it's going to actually be something much more natural and similar to to how politicians can persuade scared people today. Because remember, the Antichrist does not just come at a random time and we just never know when he'll pop out. The Antichrist comes in the aftermath of another huge disaster, the rapture. Remember that the rapture comes before the tribulation kicks off. And we see this idea in many places in scripture. It's not explicitly stated as far as like placing the rapture on a timeline, but The Bible calls the tribulation period the wrath of God. It says his wrath is being poured out on the world. But the Bible also says that believers are spared God's wrath. Like 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says, for God has not destined us for wrath. So if the tribulation is called the wrath of God and we aren't destined for wrath, it makes sense that the rapture, if it were, you know, whenever it's going to occur, that it would occur before the tribulation. And you also have verses like Revelation 3.10. Jesus said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So you have verses like that. And also, I just say, there, there really isn't any view of the rapture happening after the tribulation starts that really makes any sense to me. Uh, there, there wouldn't be, really, there wouldn't be a point to the church going through it. The church is already saved. Um, so there's no need to put them through the tribulation. Uh, You have things like Jesus said that hell would not prevail against the church, but Daniel says that the Antichrist will prevail 
against the saints during the tribulation, um, the people who get saved after the rapture. Uh, the, the text that describes the rapture happening in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, comfort one another with these words. Well, <laughs> if the rapture doesn't happen until after the tribulation starts, then those words aren't really that comforting. So, you know, for these and other reasons, most of us place the rapture before the seven-year tribulation. And, and we would say it happens basically right before. You know, I don't, I don't know why there'd be like five years or 50 years between the rapture and the tribulation. I would say it's more like, you know, it's like a week, a month, maybe even days after the rapture that the tribulation kicks off. It could even be the same day. But um, I'd, I'd say there's probably going to be a short period, period of time of like days or weeks between the rapture happening and the tribulation kicking off with the Antichrist making a covenant. Because here's what's going to be going on in the world after the rapture. So many people will have suddenly disappeared with no warning and no explanation. Uh, the, the, the unbelieving mankind will be so confused. You know, nothing like this has ever happened before. Um, I mean, there's there's been stories here and there of a person disappearing without a trace. And sometimes those cases, you know, they never get resolved. Uh, but, but like millions of people just suddenly disappearing all at once in the blink of an eye all around the world. This is obviously a supernatural event. So any answer put forward to explain it, no matter how silly, no matter how nonsensical, it's going to appear at least within the realm of possibility. No theory for such a thing could be too ludicrous. Well, now you have the stage set for deception on a massive scale. All the pieces are in place for a mass formation psychosis. So whoever comes forward with a good sounding answer, again, regardless of how realistic it is, and regardless of you know how true it is, they're going to be taken as the answer man. Whatever reason he gives for the sudden disappearance of all these people, if it can sound halfway plausible to the hearers, they'll take it as gospel truth. Now, what about the literal gospel truth? That this was a disappearance of Christians who believed the gospel and they've been taken to heaven. Well, there's a couple of reasons why that theory won't gain much traction. Okay, for one thing, the greatest source of that theory <laughs> has just been taken out of the world. Um, the highest concentration of Christian resources currently is going to be America. America has about uh, supposedly six out of 10 of its citizens claiming to be Christians, roughly 60%. Now, obviously, many of those people are just cultural Christians. They don't actually believe the Bible. They don't actually follow God, you know, because if they did, our country would look a lot different. So now at least at least half of the people of that six out of 10, at least half of them are just using Christian as a label, but there's nothing really biblical about their lives. So when the rapture happens and all the true Christians are taken away, let's just say it's going to be much smaller than that six out of 10, but let's say it's, let's say it's just 20% of the population. Okay. Well, even if you lost 20% of the population in America overnight, the country would collapse. There'd be economic ruin. There'd be a huge vacuum in this country that landed on it overnight that it would it would just not recover from. Even if just 20 or 25% of the American population diminished, that's, that's still going to be more than most countries lose. So the terror and the loss that'll be going on in America at that point, it's going to actually be much higher than in other places around the world. And as many people have pointed out, America is not even mentioned in Bible prophecy. And many people say, you know, how can that be when America is such a powerhouse on the world stage today? But listen, if the rapture happened today, America is not going to be a powerhouse anymore. You know, even if it was just 15, 20, 25 percent of the population, you, you just can't lose that big of a chunk of your population and rebound within the next seven years. So America is too dependent on its Christian population to recover from it that quickly. So when the rapture happens, at that point, America is taken off the board. It's done. I can tell you with I can tell you with near certainty that Antichrist is not going to be an American president. 
um, countries that didn't lose as much of their population in the rapture, they're going to fare a lot better after this. They're going to be more dominant in the tribulation period. And, you know, as, as far as which countries that is, I couldn't, I couldn't be super specific. The Bible tells us some of them, um, but a lot of that is just going to be speculation. Cross-references is not a geopolitical expert, but if you just look at the countries that are the least Christian right now, they're probably going to be more dominant after the rapture takes place. The ones that have that are more reliant on a Christian population, those are the ones more likely to fold over. So back to what I was saying before. The, the country that would have the best opportunity to point out that mass disappearance of like what it actually was, America, um, they're going to be silenced overnight. And then what about all those people who are left behind? But they had heard about the rapture growing up. Okay, maybe the people who grew up in church and they heard sermons on the end times or maybe read the left behind books or saw the movies or something. And they they considered themselves a Christian, but they didn't really follow what God said. Um, you'd say, well, won't those people know the truth of what happened? Well, you know, hopefully in some cases, yes. But you have to remember what we said about cognitive dissonance. Now they have to wrestle with two conflicting ideas. On the one hand, they thought, oh, I'm a, I'm a good person. But on the other hand, they have this alternative idea that if the rapture is true, then I'm one of the people that God left behind. That right there is going to be a mass cognitive dissonance trigger. Okay, they're going to be in grief for those who are gone. And the first stage of grief is denial. So there's a lot of denial going on right at the start. And also, there's going to be a lot of people left behind who are going to have to admit that not only is the Bible right, but that they were faking their Christianity before. That's going to be a really hard pill to swallow, especially if they have other people around them in similar shoes. You're going to have more of the pieces in place for a cognitive dissonance bubble where people just keep repeating false theories about the rapture to each other because that's going to be a lot more comfortable to accept than admitting that they were not genuine believers. If you have, you know, if you have one person with cognitive dissonance by himself, then he might figure out the truth eventually. But if you have five people with cognitive dissonance all talking to each other, that's that's going to be too much ego in the room to let anyone else admit we're all wrong. You're just going to reinforce the bad ideas to each other. So for the people who knew about rapture theology before, but they got left behind and, and now they see the truth in front of their face, they're still going to have a lot of emotional reasons to disregard it anyway. And they'll just be more likely to believe anything else as an explanation for what happened. And, and think about this, for everyone left behind on the earth, they're not just going to be wondering why a bunch of people vanished without a trace. They're also going to be wondering, why am I still here? You know, why was I not taken with the rest of them? So if you have billions of people all asking themselves this question in the days or weeks after the rapture, truly curious as to why they weren't taken, what is going to be a more comforting thought? To say, I was left behind because I'm a bad person? Or I was left behind because I'm a good person? The more comforting thought there is that I'm still here because there's something better about me, that I'm a better person in some way, that, that those people who were taken away were weak. Plus, those people taken, they, they were all the judgy negative people, right? Well, when faced with two options, most people go with the option that's going to be less psychologically traumatic to accept. That's just basic human nature. So the people left behind they're going to be a lot more comfortable thinking. They're going to be really primed to think that there's just something better about themselves for still being here. So by the way, if you're a Christian who was taken in the rapture, and so you're not here at that point, I, I do have some bad news for you. They probably won't be saying nice things about you once you're gone. <laughs> you know, are they going to be left here saying, oh, I guess so-and-so was actually right about God and, and I was wrong. No, they'll, <laughs> they'll probably find some more reasons to run you down. They, they won't care. Now, you won't care because you'll be in heaven. But um, when society settles on some kind of theory about why certain people were taken away, 
they almost certainly won't settle on a theory that says it's because you were a righteous follower of God. They're gonna say that you're one of the weak humans, one of the bad humans, one of the judgy humans, and that only the humans who had some significant flaw with them, those were the ones taken away. Okay, we're gonna go into our last section here now. And uh, if you, I hope you're still with me. Hope you're following along with what I'm saying. Um, you know, this is one of those, honestly, if you, if you kind of like what you're hearing, but you just can't catch it all, just listen to it again. Uh, there's a lot of audio teachings I listen to multiple times because I just don't grasp everything the first time. So I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there right now. Um, if you, if you want, Hey, it's a podcast. You can always listen to it again. Um, but let me get into our last section of the teaching for today. Uh, remember the circumstances, as we were talking about earlier, the circumstances now of a mass formation psychosis. This is, this is getting a large group of people who are experiencing cognitive dissonance to believe a crazy idea. So it can be any idea. It just has to be an idea that makes sense of reality for them. So let's review the elements of mass formation psychosis that are needed if you want to trigger it in the population. Number one, you need to have a disconnected public. Now, we already actually have that. <laughs> we have that right now, even without a rapture. People are more clued into their cell phones than the person who's sitting next to them in a waiting room or at the supermarket. Um, thanks to the internet, we, we talk a lot more to people that we don't even see every day than we talk to the people that we do see face-to-face. We aren't as social as we used to be. Our society takes place on social media. You know, people used to tell me what was happening on Twitter. And I just, I wanted to scream, Twitter isn't reality. But tr Twitter is becoming reality for a lot of people. Um, lots of conversations on there. They're, you know, they're short. They're full of insults. They get escalated almost instantaneously. And people are behaving like that more and more in real life getting more aggressive with strangers. The, the social fabric is being eaten away because what binds us together as humans, it's, it's being found now in Reddit subpages rather than shared value systems. Our heads live more in virtual echo chambers rather than in a physical community. And then the rapture happens and, and people have even fewer ties binding them together than ever. But even without a rapture, people live largely isolated lives compared to any other time in history. And then another element that you need for a mass formation psychosis, it's the withdrawal of things that people used to enjoy. Now, for one thing, you know, um, if the rapture happened, then anyone who knew a Christian or is friends with a Christian, well, then they're going to be experiencing some kind of grief. And even if you didn't know any Christians, there's going to be some kind of, right after the rapture, some kind of economic calamity going on, especially when America folds over. You know, as messed up as this country is getting, you know, I know I call it the post-Christian nation, but we do still bring a lot of blessings to this world, a lot of comforts, advances in technology, and medical treatments, and, and daily conveniences. Uh, many of these things come from America, either American patents or, or American manufacturing or American distribution, and we send a lot of money in aid, you know, foreign aid overseas. So when America doesn't have the capability to provide the same output that it used to, a lot of people around the world are going to be hurting. They're going to instantly feel the effects, not just Americans. And then a third element of mass formation psychosis is the anxiety. <laughs> yeah, obviously, there's going to be a lot of anxiety if millions of people suddenly disappear, um, as well as the other economic downturns that we mentioned. Uh, supply chains around the world are going to be disrupted. Everybody is, is boarding up their homes. Supermarket shelves are going to be emptied. Uh, people are probably going to be engaging in lots of rioting and looting. Uh, the able-bodied people and the people who aren't as able-bodied, they're going to be victimized. So the immediate aftermath, it's probably going to be chaos. It's going to feel like every man for himself pervasive fear in society, the fear of, you know, what if there's another rapture? Am I next? Am I going to be the next person taken? 
And, and what if those Christians were right? Does that mean I'm a sinner or a bad person? You know, until someone comes along with an answer or a theory about what happened that tells me I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be extremely anxious and, and prepared to believe anything. And that brings us to the fourth element, an authority figure who seems to have all the answers. Okay, so just imagine that someone steps forward who claims to have a solution, a plan to put everything back together. Someone with an explanation, and again, no matter how bizarre, but someone with an explanation for all of society's current problems and a plan for how to move forward. You know, the explanation doesn't have to make sense. (laughs) The plan doesn't have to actually work. It just has to sound psychologically comforting to the people of the world. Would they follow after someone like that? Let me read Revelation 6-2 again. It said, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So he comes riding in on a white horse like a prince in a fairy tale story. And, and of course, all this is symbolism. Um, it's not really a guy on a horse, but it's symbolizing that classic idea of Prince Charming, uh, of the savior and deliverer who comes in to save the day. And, and people will follow after this man, even worship him. He'll become an idol in the eyes of the world. And, and he's going to have a plan. Something that involves binding together many nations of the world. Don't forget, the Antichrist, he's not just going to be the powerful leader of one country. He'll be the leader of many countries. To the point that he tries to institute a one-world government and eventually a one-world religion. And people will go along with it because he seems to have all the answers. And I don't know what answer he'll come up with. You know, he could say it was aliens. He could say it was a god and and that this god took all the bad, weak people away from us so that we could build a better future without them. Um, And people would just buy into whatever he presented because they're going to latch on to whatever answer brings them psychological relief and hope. And... Unlike the, the, you know, unlike the mind control idea that's given in Left Behind, which, by the way, I'm not a Left Behind hater. I, I, think, they, I think they give a pretty good outline of the tribulation period. But the, the mind control trick that he does in those books, I just think that's not even going to be necessary. He won't need magic powers to hypnotize people <laughs> if you just understand how he can use human psychology and mass formation psychosis to convince the public to follow him. He's going to be a charismatic master persuader. And a lot of what I've said today, it really, it has come from scriptures, but I know I've thrown a lot of speculation in there too. And I'm just trying to find a way to put all this together in a way that also makes sense with what we see going on in the world around us. You know, just remember what happened merely two years ago in 2020. We had a pandemic. We had people locked down in their homes. We had people losing their jobs on a mass scale. We had race protests and riots breaking out all over the country. It was like crisis after crisis. But just imagine in the midst of that, if a charismatic individual had come onto the scene and if he had said, you know, I have an answer to all your problems. I can fix coronavirus. I can bring peace to your cities. If, if one had come along like that, don't you know the whole world would have followed after someone like that in a heartbeat? Well, if, if you think about a rapture of, of millions of people, disappearing in an instant all over the world, that that would be a terrifying and disruptive event, <laughs> to say the least. There would be immediate chaos and mass death right, you know, right after something like that. If, if you get on an airplane and you aren't a Christian, make sure your pilot isn't one either. <laughs> because if the rapture happens while you're up in the air, that plane's going to crash if he's a Christian pilot. Um, that plane's going to crash. There's going to be mass chaos breaking out on the earth right after the rapture. And probably, you know, sadly, a spike in suicide. And, and people will be blaming everyone for everything with nothing making sense. People will be doubting themselves, asking themselves if they were left behind because God is actually real and, and they actually are a sinner. And just imagine in the midst of that worldwide carnage, that a man comes forward with a plan. 
people will be primed and ready to accept it. Listen to these verses from 2 Thessalonians, it's chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Tell me if they make sense based on what I've been telling you today. I'm going to read this. It says, the coming of the lawless one, and that's referring to the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, (laughs) we didn't even get to the second half of the tribulation today, but as I've kind of mentioned in the second half, that's when the Antichrist goes full evil. And you might wonder, why would people continue to follow him after he reveals his true nature? Again, Think of the cognitive dissonance that they'll be experiencing. It'll be kind of like the German citizens who started to realize that Hitler might have some bad intentions. You know, they they had already voted for the guy. They had already signed on to his agenda. They had already pledged allegiance. So to turn back now, that would be admitting that you were wrong. Well, by the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist, he will have his base. And anyone who's not in his base will be vilified. Anybody who doesn't treat him like the second coming of Christ, they're going to be ostracized and demonized in the public and in the media. You know, public enemy number one. And and we know that he'll make a mandate that you take his mark to pledge allegiance. So if you've already bought in that far, you know, if you've already been convinced to hate on the people who aren't on his team, uh, taking the mark on your body to show whose side you're on, it's really not that big of a leap. It's really just the lex- the next logical step in the delusional path that you're walking by that point. So why will so many people devote themselves to the Antichrist, even to the point of taking a brand for him on their hand or on their forehead? You know, it seems so bizarre today, but it makes more sense when we understand mass formation psychosis. If you have a question on this topic today or on anything that we've been covering on the podcast, uh, leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. The next time on this podcast, we'll be finishing up the third chapter of Ezekiel, looking at the well-known passage about a watchman on the wall. So look for that episode to drop in the next week or two. And to quickly recap... We talked about cognitive dissonance and mass formation psychosis today, and those are two very psychological subjects. Um, mass formation psychosis, and that's that one is really more about sociology, really. it's It's been in the news a bit lately, which is why I brought it up on here, but I didn't want to get into how people are arguing about it right now and what it means to current debates going on in society. I just kind of, I was thinking about this more from a Bible and a prophecy point of view. So, um, you know, at this point, I'm not going to go through a full recap. (laughs) Um, I just want to remind you of one thing. Remember that everybody experiences cognitive dissonance, especially every time we're wrong. And just because it's universal, that doesn't mean that we have no responsibility to push through it. Anytime that we're struggling with conflicting ideas, the Bible says that we still have an obligation to deal with it until we arrive at the truth. So for those who reject the truth, God will give them what they want too. God will harden the heart. God will give them over to a depraved mind. They'll receive a strong delusion to believe what is false. And um, what is false? The the lie, as some translations say, the lie, um, as we brought up today, is going to be the Antichrist solution to the problems that society will face in the aftermath of the rapture. A solution that's going to involve creating a treaty among many nations, setting himself up as the de facto ruler of the world. And this is part of God's wrath on the world for the seven-year tribulation. So today's lesson, you know, this was fun for me, and I, I hope it was fun for you. We mixed together some current events, some psychology, some history, some speculation, and some Bible. 
And uh, I guess I hope that I made this stuff that the Bible says about the future seem more real to you. If this isn't the type of Bible study that you enjoy though, <laughs> I, hey, I tried to warn you at the beginning, but um, I hope you did learn something today though. You know, please send us an email or leave a comment below. Let us know what you thought of this episode. I'd, I'd love to know if you'd like more episodes like this someday, or if you'd rather that we stick to our more typical format in the future. Um, and if you are, you know, generally speaking, if you are enjoying the show, please go leave, leave us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. That helps more people to find this Bible study. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, always be ready for the rapture.